ever since I became a Christian, some 45 years ago now, even though I'd grown up in the church, I counted from the time up in Twin Peaks when I understood more and was baptized as an adult. But the thing that has bothered me more than anything else is professional pastors. And that might be because you say, well, you're an amateur pastor. Well, that might be, okay? But, um, and when I say professional pastors, let's put quotation marks around that because my beef has never been with faithful pastors of a congregation, small or large, who day in, day out, guide their congregation, study the word, present it. My statement is not that those men should not be paid. In, in Luke 10, 1 through 7, Jesus himself set the example for evangelists and teachers of the gospel. He said, it says, After this the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them out on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and, every, and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. Greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there... Your peace will rest upon him, but if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Okay, so the Lord, uh, Jesus himself has said, labor is to be paid. The Apostle Paul wrote this to the church in Corinth uh, on the subject of support of those who served them in pastoral roles. He says, am I not free? This is chapter 9 of, um, I think it's 1 Corinthians, and I didn't write it down. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, apostle because there was controversy even back then, was Paul an apostle? He he persecuted the church. He says, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. 
if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. So it's abundantly clear in scripture that a pastor is not only allowed to make a a living in the teaching and spreading of the gospel. My problem, as I say, is with professional pastors. I define that as a man who works at the church as he would at any other business. Okay? A chance to make a buck. Uh, I have shared this before, but as I, when I was a teenager, and I was attracted to the things of the church, and, and a pastor saw that in me, and he took me aside one time, and, and he said, Mike, you really ought to go to seminary. I can get you into seminary. Claremont was the local Methodist seminary. He said, I can get you into seminary. And being a minister is a great life. He says, in the Methodist church, you work for the Methodist church, by the way, if you don't know that. Salary comes from headquarters. You've got insurance. You've got a savings plan. He said, it's a great life, Mike, and, and you only have to work one day a week. And even back then as a teenager, I thought, um, this is not a proper motivation for a minister of God, okay? It really wasn't. And the fellow shortly after that left and became a used car salesman. And I'm not saying that to run down used car salesmen. I'm telling you this because it's the truth. So later on, before moving to the mountains and before when I considered myself a Christian, I would hear radio broadcasts of Reverend Ike. One of the per first purveyors of the so-called prosperity gospel. Actually, people have been uh, purveying that for a long time, but it's about that time that it was called the prosperity gospel. Actual quote from Reverend Ike, I looked these things up, and he sang this from his pulpit. Lots and lots of money ready for my use. Oh yes, it's ready for my use. Okay. Still later in the late 70s, just before moving up here, I was building an Arby's in uh, Bakersfield. And the only thing on, we had to start working at like four in the morning in Bakersfield in the summer because it was so hot. We had to get up, get to the job, 
work in the heat of the day, then we would take off, it was sort of the siesta idea, we'd have to take off it from 12 to 3, come back and work 3 to 7 because it was so hot in Bakersfield. But the only thing in the mid-70s, on television at 4 o'clock in the morning, was Jim and Tammy Baker. Uh, see, I get this wrong, Tammy Faye Baker, because I usually say Tammy Bay Faker. And I do that accidentally. I'm, I'm just throwing that out. But they were also purveyors of the, the gospel of health and wealth. Today we have Joel Osteen and his gospel of health and wealth. There is big money in false religion, as it turns out. People will send you money. A second-rate science fiction writer was quoted by on several occasions as saying, you don't get rich writing science fiction. If you want to get rich, you start a religion. So um, L. Ron Hubbard did in Scientology. I was going to say uh, is his legacy, but not. It's his epitaph because it is a dead religion. Here are two Mike Johnson rules of thumb about false ministers. One, if money or donations are mentioned before the gospel of Jesus Christ, or more frequently, that person is a false teacher. Two, the second one, if a pastor needs a private jet, or in some cases, two, he is not in fact a pastor, but merely a man making a buck off a gullible church. I will throw those two out for you. It would have been much better for that man's soul, that minister, if he had simply gone into some other business and not tried to profit on his own false religion. Now today in Acts, we see two completely opposite men, a true minister of God and a man who's merely serving mammon. Turn to Acts 19, we're covering 23 through 27, Acts 19, 23 through 27. And I'll read it through and then, of course, take it verse by verse. And I'm not going back, this is a pretty good clean break. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Now, as seems typical of Luke, what he calls no little disturbance here is subtitled in most Bibles as the riot in Ephesus, okay? So, uh, but Paul said, no little disturbance. Um, the Apostle Paul 
sees it in a generally different light. You know, normally the Apostle Paul shrugs off the hardship he faced. Um, only occasionally does he forcefully state what he has endured for the gospel, and only then to make a contrasting point to another situation. In Acts, uh, in the not Acts, in the Second Corinthians, he issues a corrective. There are false apostles that have entered the church, people who turn themselves super apostles as opposed to Paul. Okay, these people were self-styled super apostles, and they were mocking Paul and in the church and uh, saying about him that he was a fool. In uh, 2 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 21, Paul sets them straight on who the fool is. He says, but whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a, as a fool. And so he's bringing this right to their face. I'm speaking as a fool here. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews, these false apostles? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. And Paul doesn't do this very often. But he says, I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less once. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is a daily pressure of me on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? So, though Luke conveys little danger to the Christians in Ephesus in verses 23 through 27, listen to Paul's thoughts in his own words about this no small disturbance in Ephesus writing to the church in Corinth about the resurrection of the dead in 1 Corinthians 15, 29 through 32, Paul says, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are the people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, my brothers, uh, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. And, I'm, and then he says, almost in an aside, he adds, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? Okay? So he's saying, I've been in danger, and in Ephesus I fought with beasts. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. To Paul, what transpired in Ephesus was akin to being thrown to the lions, to fighting with beasts. This happened in Ephesus. Was he exaggerating? In, sec in the second letter to the Corinthians, in chapter 
1, verses 8 through 11, he explained further. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. And Asia, of course, is what we call Turkey. Asia Minor we've been covering, which is Ephesus was the leading city of it. He says, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not only on God ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. So he says, we were under deadly peril. We were afraid for our lives, but he did deliver us. Remember, both 1st and 2nd Corinthians were written at the end of his stay in Ephesus, at this exact time that we're reading about today in Acts. This is when he was writing those letters. And then he writes to the Romans. Remember last week I uh, was talking about Romans. He was really writing sort of an introduction to himself because he hoped to stop in Rome on his way to Spain. Priscilla and Aquila, who had been with him in Ephesus at this time, have already returned to Rome. And so in Romans 16, 3 through 4, he says this. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Whatever all went down in Ephesus, Paul credits the husband and wife pair for saving his life in Ephesus. And in once again showing you just how exactly ancient people were like us, Paul says he risked their necks. That's an exact translation of the Greek, okay? He didn't say they saved my lives. He says they, they saved, saved, saved our necks. Same thing we say today, just to show you that uh, they talked the same way. So back to our scripture for today. Verse 24 says, About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Uh, so I think I've considered covered that uh, Lucanism uh, thoroughly uh, and that the reference to the way here is the earliest term for Christianity which we've seen before undoubtedly coming from Jesus' statement that he was the way, the truth, and the life. So to follow Jesus was to follow the way of course. Verse 24 that was verse 23. Verse 24 introduces us to our servant of mammon the man who is serving his own interests and not his religion's interest. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. And some suspect he was um, a businessman who was contracting with the uh, silversmiths to uh, supply him with these shrines of, Demetrius, uh, of Artemis. And a shrine doesn't mean they're doing it of the temple. Uh, they're making a little boat of a little shrine. You'll see Buddhas in Asia or something that that's a shrine. Well, that, this is what they're making. They're making representations of Artemis that either he's selling or it is perhaps, because it says he is a silversmith here, he is possibly the head of the silversmith guild in Ephesus. The Ephesians, um, oh, the Ephesian god Artemis, 
uh, differed a lot from the uh, uh, Greek god Artemis and the Roman counterpart Diana that the rest of the area is worshipped. Diana and the Greek Artemis was a chaste, chaste huntress, a virginal figure, okay? But the goddess of the Ephesians was a grotesque, multi-breasted goddess of fertility who was celebrated by priestess prostitutes and the usual debauchery that attended the worship of fertility deities. Uh, the interesting thing is the image of her was said to have been formed in heaven and fell to earth. Well, what it is suspected it was, was a meteorite that melted coming down and it was this blob with a lot of protrusions that were breasts. Other such meteorites were uh, worshipped as cult objects in Troy, in uh, Piscinus, in Enna, and Amasa. The ancients knew what a, that a meteorite was not a regular rock, okay? Some of the most famous weapons of war, swords, were fashioned out of meteorites because it was basically steel falling from heaven, which nobody else had. It would shatter the iron swords of other people. So they worshipped these rocks that they knew had fallen from heaven. And this one fell down and it was blob-like and, and it was housed in the temple of Artemis there and worshipped. The silver images of Artemis uh, that this man Demetrius commissioned made up a high percentage of the commerce of Ephesus which had been a port city and a trading center but the, port, the, the river had silted up and they could no longer do that. So this is how they made their money. And people would make pilgrimages. I told you that it was one of the seven wonders of the world, the uh, a temple of Artemis. Well, it was half again as long as a football field. It was 450 feet long. And it was half again as wide as a football field at 225 feet. And it was at least six stories tall. This was a big building. They didn't do this in a small way. And just as people went to the other wonders of the six wonders of the ancient world they came and by the way it's not us who call these the seven wonders of the world they were called the seven wonders of the world at the time uh, marketing I guess uh, Colossus of Rose comes to the one of the seven wonders of the world but it's the same here they it was a marketing ploy get people to see the one of the seven wonders of the world and this was making up a significant part of their economy, both the tours and the selling of these silver statues. So Demetrius calls together all the tradespeople of Ephesus to defend the honor of Artemis in verse 25. And, he, uh, and this is how he puts it. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades. So not just the silver smiths, but men in similar trades were making money off of the temple of Artemis. He says, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. Okay? Demetrius didn't talk about his revered goddess with his first statement. Instead he talked about the religion business. 
and the amount of money they made off of false worship. Uh, what was that quote of ever, Reverend Ike? Lots and lots of money ready for my use. That's what they were concerned with. That's also the main concern for Demetrius. Verse 26 brings us to Demetrius complaining about a true minister of God because he says, And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And you would think that to our ears, that's obvious, but it was not obvious back then. Paul's success in spreading the gospel had nothing to do with monetary gain. Instead, he relentlessly preached the word of God. As a true minister of God, he did not appeal to the Ephesian religion incorporating popular elements of theirs into his. And that's a common thing. People say, oh, Christianity brought in the pagan religions and replaced that." Paul had none of that. He didn't bring any idol worship of any sort into his preaching. He, he rejected any worship of idols made by human hands. Paul's preaching was never concerned with material wealth. Uh, the, the most we've seen is when he is writing to churches about a collection for the poor going through a famine in Jerusalem. He never said, this is for me. He never took any of it. In fact, we have seen before that when he got that collection, he had the people who collected it take it with him to Jerusalem so that there would not be any infighting about what he did with the money. Instead of being concerned with money, we've seen in other cities such as Corinth, Paul worked his trade of leatherwork to support his ministry. Now, in Ephesus, he was lucky enough, and the Ephesians were generous. They supported him while he was there, as we've seen before. But they also supported him in his missionary journeys for the rest of his life. They were a rich area. They could do that, and they chose to support Paul. He was thankful for any support that he received. And he did not complain when it was not available. Verse 27a reads, And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into dis disrepute, so we'll stop there. Once again, Demetrius' first concern is for the livelihood of the silversmith. So many people were turning from pagan idols to the one true God found in the preaching of Paul, that there would be no market for their trinkets due to a lack of pilgrims to the Temple of Artemis. And it was obvious all throughout Asia Minor, where he had been focusing his first two missionary trips, people were changing their habits and they were turning away from the worship of false gods. Finally, in 47b, Demetrius turns to the rejection of his pagan gods when he says, in 27b, he says, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia 
and the world worship. But even this defense of Artemis took into account the financial impact. If Artemis is seen to be simply a clay or silver object made by human hands, she might fall out of favor everywhere she was worshipped. And there were 33 temples to Artemis throughout the Roman Empire. Uh, she was probably the most popular of pagan gods that they had. All, though this huge temple was in Ephesus, there were smaller temples all over the Roman Empire. Demetrius was not exaggerating when he said Artemis was worshipped in every part of Asia and across the whole world. Now, for a pagan, this might be a perfectly reasonable factor in propping up a false religion. Look at all the people who might suffer financially at the coming of the gospel. But you know, Paul didn't give a thought to those financial considerations. Unlike what some televangelists and radio preachers before that do, God does not promise anyone, even his own adopted sons and daughters, maybe even especially his adopted sons and daughters, financial security. He does not promise us that. Financial security for all believers would lead to dependence on one's own ability, would lead to boasting not on God but on oneself and would ultimately lead you away from the Lord of life into the worship of yourself. The so-called health and wealth gospel is no gospel at all. It is instead bad news. If gospel means good news, health and wealth gospel, gospel is bad news. A long time ago, I gave a sermon that I entitled The Gospel of Poverty and Disease. Okay? And I really do truly believe that if you look at Paul's life, Paul had a thorn in his side he couldn't get rid of. He did not work for money. He was supported by churches and he always was scraping by. If Paul is not given good health, if Paul is not given wealth, why would we even assume that God is concerned with giving that to us and why would a preacher preach that that is God's purpose? Earlier I talked about the Reverend Ike and the gospel of poverty and disease is closer to what Christians can expect than what he or Joel Osteen are preaching. Earlier I had talked about the false apostles that had come into the church at Corinth mocking Paul in his poverty and his weakness and styling themselves as super apostles not like Paul, but new and improved apostles, you know. In 2 Corinthians, Paul responded to their ridicule. I've read from 2 Corinthians already, but this is continuing on. He responds to their ridicule in this way. He says, I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. 
And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body. I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weakness. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may make, think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So for all that faith healers out there, God doesn't choose that all enjoy great health. Some lame will remain lame. Most. Not all the blind will see. Not all the poor will become rich. God's power, as Paul quotes Jesus, is sufficient for us. His power is made perfect in weakness. So if you're a pastor out there, worrying about attendance instead of preaching the word of God, if you're more worried about your building fund than the state of your congregation's soul, if your private jet is getting old and your ministry really needs a new one, if the things of the world overshadow your passion for the things of God, you need to reflect on whether you are a Demetrius or a Paul. Let's close in prayer.